This is Marginalia, a podcast where the pastors and staff at New City here in Cincinnati discuss the scribbles in the margin, so to speak, of our Sunday sermons, as well as everything else that's going on in the life of the church. And I am Josh Rotano, and today I'm talking with Abby Murrish. Abby, how are you? Doing well. Happy to be here. Still in quarantine, still in your house. Yes, safe at home. That's how I like to brand it. At home, that's nicer. And uh, also talking with Pastor Ryan Zhang. Ni hao. Hello. Very good. And are uh, joined by our good friend, Jacob Sama. Jacob, how are you doing? Doing great, Joshua. How are you? You are recording from your... Are you home or are you in your office? I am in my socially distant office where... Uh, on a normal day, there are roughly 900 people in our building. Today, there are 17. 17. We all steer clear of one another, I'm sure. Well, this week on uh, our podcast, we're going to be talking about the KL 2020 conference. Really excited to uh, do a little bit of a retrospective and summary of what we saw and experienced there and talk about it with you all. But uh, I have a few things I wanted to tease out with you guys a little bit um, beforehand. So we're recording during Holy Week, and I believe this is going to drop. Is that the lingo, uh, Abby? We're going to yes. This, 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 this episode will drop on Holy Saturday, I believe. Um, but we're recording during Holy Week. So my question for you guys: Any Holy Week traditions that you have with your families or friends? Anything that you regularly do personally? Love to hear them. So Edmund was born on Holy Saturday. So he also dropped on Holy Saturday. (laughs) Uh, Our family meets up on Sunday evening for a big dinner uh, with all crazy people and good food and egg hunts and all those sorts of things. So we'll miss that this year. We have had a very different Holy Weekend every year of our marriage, Um, whether it's been food sickness or traveling or some of like the traditional having friends over for dinner. Um, but wait, I'm wait, wait, real quick. Was the food sickness related to like peeps or Cadbury eggs? Or you anything? know, it involves flying home on an airplane in an international flight. So we will not recount that story. Um, the day Edmund was born, actually. So it's a very memorable holy day week. Um, yeah, but this year I'm, we're doing two things. We're doing resurrection eggs with Phoebe. And then I bought champagne to go with our breakfast on Sunday morning. So inspired by the N.T. Wright quote. Oh, very good. We, uh, you know, we don't have a ton. I, I'm always working, of course, in Holy Week. But uh, and, and back to when we first got married, there was uh, always a Monday, Thursday service where I was usually usually preaching and uh, and then a Good Friday service where I was part of the preaching there. So um, our big kind of celebration after getting those things over with uh, was to be able to go to um, the root beer stand on Saturday, on Holy Saturday. And so uh, we hope to to do some carry out from the, the root beer stand to keep that uh, tradition alive uh, today as you're, maybe even as you're listening to this podcast now, that's where we'll be. It's, uh, it's not heard that uh, traditions are peer pressure from dead people. What do you think about that? <laughs> it's also, guys, it's National Garden Week. Uh, Abby, you told us you're starting your garden this year. How's it coming? Um, I have seedlings, so I feel like that's progress, and I'm excited about that. Jake, you're kind of a gardener, huh? A little bit? No, not really. 
Oh. Used to be. It died a long time ago with all of the plants. April 9th is Winston Churchill Day. And uh, one of the true delights of the legacy of Winston Churchill is an insult generator that you can find on the internet where you can come up with your, you know, some version of a Winston Churchill insult. One of my favorites was uh, Bessie Bradbook, uh, who's, who's Churchill's, uh, uh, what would you, nemesis, would you say, perhaps a public opponent at one point at a, at a party, she said to, uh, she said, Mr. Churchill, you are drunk. And he said to her, yes, but tomorrow I'll be sober and you'll still be ugly, which is not kind, but very funny. And if it came as quickly as the historians will uh, make it seem like, it's a, it's a pretty quick, quick wit. Uh, Saturday uh, is eight track tape day. Any of you guys ever own an eight track of any kind? No. Ryan, Don't do you even know what an eight track is? is? Yeah. I have no idea what that is. After records and before cassette tapes, there was something very briefly called the eight track. My brothers had an eight track deck in their car. I remember them driving me around when I was a small child and I'm quite a bit younger than my siblings. And uh, I remember the old eight track. It's also national siblings day. uh, And so uh, make sure and uh, call your siblings uh, on Saturday. If you're listening. It means nothing to me because I'm the only child. Well, that's all right. It means nothing to a whole generation of Chinese people. Yeah, also true. And we're going to talk about China here in a little bit. But before we get to that, let's talk quarantine for a second. Um, I'm curious. We've been talking about foods. We've been talking about what we've been reading or listening to. But now that we have Jake on the episode, it would be nice to have an extra voice here. I'd love to hear what is one thing pleasantly different about your life during this quarantine season? One thing that's pleasantly different. Work has looked really different for us, probably a lot of people. And so we've been spending a lot of our mornings. Um, Phoebe is an early riser, shall we say. So, um, But she loves just to putter around her bedroom and look at books and open cabinets. And so Mike and I take our books and Bibles and coffee into her room early in the morning and let her putts and we read and drink coffee. So that's been a lovely change of pace. That does sound great. I haven't worn a suit in two weeks. Uh, so that's been pretty fun. I get to wear jeans to work, which hasn't ever happened. It, it, for those of you who can't, you know, we are on a zoom call. We can see each other. Obviously you guys can't. Jake is in a uh, cutoff mesh tank top right now um, while he's recording this. But I'm not wearing khakis. So since all the barber shops are closed, my wife, got to cut my hair three days ago and I look better than I've ever looked in my whole life. So I agreed. I, I'm looking forward to good Friday because it'll be a live stream and people could actually see how good my haircut looks. It, she did do a good job, but it, the hard part is I can't tell though, by the way that you do it, the way you say this, whether you're complimenting yourself or your wife, I'd like to think you're complimenting oh, your wife's oh, always work. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. What's one thing you guys can't wait to get back to post quarantine baseball. Yeah. I heard you guys had tickets to tonight's game, Jacob. We did in fact have tickets to the game tonight back, uh, what, two and a half, three weeks ago, whenever it was when, uh, they anticipated baseball coming back, uh, tonight, uh, I went ahead and got tickets for tonight in hopeful anticipation that the Reds would be taking the field en route to their wire to wire championship season in 2020. Uh, 
alas, it has not come to pass and my tickets will hopefully be refunded at some point. It's hard to say because all the things I've been looking forward to, like symphony concerts, Wimbledon, they've all been canceled. So I think it's just getting together with uh, people on Sunday morning. Yeah, I've missed Sunday mornings a lot. Um, and then just things like having friends over for dinner. That's been one of a, a big thing I've missed. Yeah, so I'm excited for that. I feel like I, I got Jesus juke there a little bit. I mean, I miss church too, but I also miss baseball. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm gonna go uh, your route, Jacob. I uh, I also miss baseball, but I really have missed lunches out with people. I, I tend to have a lot of appointments um, during the week with people, and so I really miss meeting people out and getting a chance to hang out. I'm looking forward to that when it comes back. All right. Well, we're gonna take a short break, and uh, then we're gonna come back and talk about the KL Kuala Lumpur 2020 conference. So we'll take a break and hear from a word from our sponsor. So Josh, who's our sponsor this week in our time of pandemic? This week's episode of Marginalia is brought to you by Tushy. Tushy offers a complete line of bidet products for modern, for all the modern bathroom needs. Everything from a bidet that clips onto your toilet seat to bathroom ottomans, to bamboo toilet paper. Transform your restroom into the best room with Tushy. Now, I uh, read an article about Tushy, you guys. Uh, One, that their sales have quadrupled during the coronavirus time. Um, But also, and I did not know this, they they have a couple of products, but they have the Tushy Classic, which is a single temperature bidet that you clip onto the your existing toilet, but they also have what's called the Tushy Spa, which is a temperature control bidet feature, which sounds better to me uh, if you have to choose between the two, but sounds like a handy thing. We're glad to have them as a sponsor this week. So check out Tushy, transform your restroom into the best room. KL 2020 is what we're talking about on the show today. And um, Ryan and Jacob and I, had the opportunity to travel to Kuala Lumpur uh, at the very end of January to take part in this conference. And so, Ryan, maybe you could tell us just a little bit first, even before we get into the specifics of the conference, could you tell us a little bit about China Partnership? New City um, Church has developed a relationship with China Partnership. So tell us a little bit about what China Partnership is and then also your relationship. Um, What do you do for the organization? So yeah, China Partnership is one of the organizers um, involved with the conference. As the name mentioned, uh, you know, reflects China Partnership. So it's a it's missions to China to, to the Chinese people, mostly to the house churches in China. But the word partnership has quite a bit of significance because we think about the third world country, we think about Asia and Africa, and we think about mission, and and usually we think, oh, we are the ones sending, we are the ones that are giving and teaching and training people. But in the last few decades, especially in China, you see a lot of maturity coming out of the Chinese churches and that you kind of see the table turn a little bit, that not just that we are giving, but we are also receiving quite a bit. And China partnerships are organizations that want to promote that. So in one hand, we bring theological training, we bring um, networking, we bring... um, 
we bring uh, uh, organizational structure to China to help the Chinese churches form presbyteries, form network to learn from each other. But we also bring a lot of content out of China to translate and to teach Americans about what's happening in China and also what their pastors and their churches could teach us. So it's really a partnership. And so that's why we picked the name China Partnership. And part of my role there is to be the translation manager. So I help them take the content out of China and then translate them into English. So I work with a team of translators to translate things and then publish them here. So hopefully we would um, have Americans here to learn more about not just Chinese churches, but what Chinese culture looks like. Because I think a lot of people think about China as you know, the, the little red book for Mao and the in the 1980s, people were still very backward, but that's not the case at all. So we want people to know what's really happening in China and in the Chinese church. In your translation work, has there been any particular piece um, that you've worked on that you felt like has been, uh, even as, as you've gone through the process of the translating, that you've really learned from or that's really stood out to you that you want other people to know about? Yeah, a few things. You know, first, China partnership started off... Um, doing a lot more translation just um, of a writing, really just kind of focusing on the Chinese Americans. And then really gradually we shift over to getting contents out of China. And so early on, we got contents kind of um, that most people don't really know about. And like, you know, there's um, Pastor Wang Yi who wrote a 95 thesis, kind of like Martin Luther, uh, Luther's tradition, kind of like why Chinese churches do not register with the government and why it's uh, it's the faithful thing to do. And of course, he got into trouble for a lot of that. Um, And he's eventually thrown to jail and he's now in prison for nine years. So that was one thing that I could work on early on. And then most recently, um, I've gotten to learn a lot from the the pastors there, get to meet them and learn from them. And and their writing on suffering, on on their posture toward government. It's a very interesting posture that I think for us Americans have to learn from kind of the, it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a partnership with the government, but it's also not a, a total submission. And it's a balance of those two. And, and I think it's a, it's a place where the American churches are kind of exploring and, and changing in the next years and decades. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing about that. Um, let's talk about the conference in particular now. Um, so what was KL 2020? Um, what was the thought behind the conference? Who came? Like what kinds of people were there? What's it all about? So the conference is a big conference that um, happens every three years. The first one was in Hong Kong and Tim Keller uh, went to speak to that. There was about a thousand people, maybe about a thousand, fifteen hundred people. And then the second one happened three years later, also in Hong Kong and John Piper um, Paul Tripp went over and speak in that conference. And this one was last so three years later, 2020. And this one happened in Malaysia. And it's about 3,500 people. We were expecting 5,000, but over 1,000 people couldn't come because of the coronavirus. And Tim Keller and Don Carson came over. And this one has a more um, international feel to it because in Hong Kong, it was still Chinese territory. But now it's in Malaysia. We had over people from over 20, 20 countries came and most of them from China, but it's a conference for people to get together, learn about the Chinese church to for the Chinese pastors and Chinese Christians to interact with Christians around the world. 
And, and you know, the, the, the president of China partnership said this and kind of stuck with me is that, you know, in American, in America, Americans have conference all the time. You could go to gospel coalitions, you go to um, together for the gospel conference, um, you go to Urbana, all that. But in China, they don't have conferences like that because churches are not legal or house churches are not legal. So this is really a time for the Chinese church to get together for them to have a family reunion. And it's a great privilege for us in America and from other countries to really participate and to, to join this family reunion. I've got a quick question. Um, the 20 other countries that were represented um, at the conference, were those church leaders from those countries or people who just wanted to support the conference in some way? Um, different people, some mission, mission agencies, some pastors who want to see what's happening in China. I think most of them are people who have some sort of connection with Chinese churches. Let's talk about the location for a second, because I understand that that was carefully chosen. You mentioned the shift from Hong Kong to Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia. Uh, yeah, what, what was it about uh, Kuala Lumpur? And here we are in Malaysia with a huge, enormous group of Chinese Christians, um, is there a tie there other than geographic proximity? What's the significance of Kuala Lumpur? I think the um, the Chinese population helped to have organizers and volunteers to help host the conference. Um, the, the Chinese Malaysia, population in, in Malaysia. Malaysia sorry, yeah. Yes, so, yes, so uh, other than the Malay people, the Chinese is the next largest uh, ethnic group in Malaysia. Is that right? That I'm not sure. There are a lot of Chinese, a lot of um, Indians, and it's a quite diverse city. I was shocked by how diverse it is. And I think logistically, Hong Kong has become more and more difficult. And and it's really God's providence how this conference happened. If it had, if we had been planning in Hong Kong, also last summer there were a lot of riots and protests in Hong Kong, so it would put a major obstacle to the conference. And then in January, with the coronavirus happening in China and Hong Kong would be, it was in lockdown and it was um, very tight control. So that conference wouldn't happen if we chose Hong Kong. So how, you know, God ordained us to go to Malaysia and to, to use that location as a bridge to the West and to the other parts of the world. That was a, um, a strategic choice, but at the same time, uh, there are all, a lot of other unforeseen circumstances that make that choice more providential. Uh, what did you think? Neither, I don't think any of us, uh, Jake, Ryan, nor myself had been to Malaysia before. What was it, How would you characterize it? What was it like? Would you, would you, what was your experience like? It was interesting because uh, Kuala Lumpur is a huge city. Uh, so it was not unlike some of the more metropolitan cities in Cincinnati or in the United States. Um, but it was completely culturally different. Is this not the question? You're that laughing. That, I'm laughing because you said cities in Cincinnati. I was going to yeah. yeah, 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 reference yeah. Norwood. Uh, <laughs> much like Norwood, Kuala Lumpur, Cosmopolitan Center. Right. All right. So should I start over now that you made fun of me? Just yeah. keep going. So, uh, it won't be the last time that we make fun of it. It's a huge uh, metropolitan area. Uh, it's very spread out. Uh, super cool buildings. Um, the Petronas Towers are there, which I remember from Mission Impossible. So that was cool to see those. Um, and so uh, it was a really great uh, experience to be, you know, uh, halfway across the world and uh, just experiencing something so different uh, than I'm used to. 
Uh, yeah, for, same for me. Um, I've been to Tokyo before, but other than a summer spent in Japan 20 some years ago, this was my uh, my first trip uh, to, to Asia since since that time. And so it was a, it was a great um, chance to be there. And I think having read a little bit on the front end, um, particularly about sort of the colonial area of Malaysia, um, there were some helpful insights maybe there, but I don't think anything prepared me for the modern nature of the city. I mean, something it's so different than traveling in Europe or traveling even in the United States. Europe, of course, you have thousand year old uh, buildings. Uh, in the U.S., you have you know several hundred year old buildings, but you have these very very modern cities in Asia and Kuala Lumpur is certainly a great example of that. And in some ways there, it's just astounding um, the way things are set up, the, the, the grid in which the city is laid. And um, it, it feels, I mean, it feels in some ways like the future uh, when you're, when you're in a place like that, the, the sheer size of the, the skyscrapers and uh, how close they are to one another and how many people are, uh, are crammed into uh, small areas. It's, it's really fascinating um, you know, to see that. Also, just um, I don't think I was prepared for what an incredible mix of, uh, and I should be, I suppose, you, you hear about just the cosmopolitan nature of global cities in general, but how many different kinds of people there were. You could walk through a side street and you very much thought you were in Malaysia. You could turn the corner and you might have been in um, you know, Prague or, um, or some side street in Paris, uh, you know, given the way people were dressed and uh, the way some of the shops and the coffee shops were uh, oriented to restaurants and so on. Jacob, uh, you're a bit of a foodie and you uh, tried a lot of foods while you were there. What was it, one day in particular, you had uh, at least I think a personal record. How many different animals did you eat that day? 13 different animals in that one day. Uh, it was pretty great. Uh, Ryan, Wait, can you list them? Do you, do you know them off the top of your head? Uh, not off the top of my head, Josh. This was months ago now, and lots has happened since then. But yeah, dog. No, I was kidding. <laughs> I believed you. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> That's great. Uh, it wasn't bad. <laughs> uh, there's, you know, the normals. There was cow, pig, uh, goat, uh, chicken, various kinds of fish. So there's like salmon, trout, uh, there's squid, um, shrimp, um, deer, frog. Uh, what are the other weird ones? I think, I think we, had, we had lamb was there, lamb. right? Did you mention lamb? Yeah. And there were three others or two others. It was great. Uh, we had some, uh, lax, lax me, lax me, which I still can't say, uh, from a guy named Baba can cook, um, who is a, uh, local celebrity that Josh made me take a picture with. So that was pretty fun. Um, we got to try lots of different uh, uh, dishes that were both national, but uh, one of the cool things about Malaysia, as Josh and Ryan said, is that uh, it's kind of a melting pot of different cultures. So there's a lot of Chinese influence and Indian influence and uh, Thai influence in the different foods. So uh, it was all pretty interesting. Um, lots of good spice. Um, it was great. Yeah, so the um, conference, as I mentioned, we had Don Carson and, and Tim Keller. They're the kind of the keynote speakers. But then there were also quite a few Chinese speakers from mainland China, from Taiwan, uh, a couple from America, but they're Chinese pastors here. And so they got a chance to preach, and you, Jake and Josh, you guys got a chance to hear them. 
And I don't know if you've heard that many Chinese preachers preach before, but what was it like, especially from preachers? Just from one China? up to this point. Up Just to one. one Chinese preacher that I hear. But So what is it like, you know, for you guys to hear pastors from China, interact with them, and you got to meet a few of them? You know, what's it like for you? Yeah, I can say a couple of things um, from my perspective. Um, haven't had the opportunity to travel a little bit before. What this reminded me of um, is how, uh, what a great uniting factor it is to, to recognize the sheer global nature of the church of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is not only that we all use the terminology uh, of Christianity, but there is a real sense um, in communing with and connecting with people from around the globe, and in this case, pastors in particular, um, that there really is a transcendental nature to um, the Christian gospel and to God himself. In some ways, it's a little bit like reading things from history as well. Like at the times that I've read, you know, I can read uh, Augustine, for example, Augustine's Confessions. And there's, I mean, he's so far removed from my experience of daily life, uh, fourth century, North Africa, uh, you know, verse 21st century United States. And yet I read uh, Augustine and I recognize I recognize his God as he's writing about it. And I feel the same way as I heard these Chinese pastors preach um, that there is a, a shared sense of awe and wonder and conviction and love uh, for, for God um, that exists that transcends so many other differences that would make it very difficult to, um, to possibly, you know, connect in any other way. And so this was, uh, for me, just a reminder of the, the global nature of the church and um, uh, just the wonder of the gospel. I think for me, it was a relatively humbling experience in that, uh, you know, I've grown up as an American uh, kid steeped in American theology and all of these things where America is the greatest. And so to go uh, all the way around the world and to hear, um, you know, nuanced um, thoughts and uh, learnings, not only from personal experience, but uh, through gleaning uh, theological truths from God's word um, from pastors that were, like Josh has said, speaking the same language, but look different uh, than what I experience typically um, was uh, in a lot of ways really humbling to realize that, you know, we don't have the corner on the market of God's truth. Um, and, uh, you know, other people throughout the world experience uh, God in their daily lives, and I can learn from that. And so uh, to experience that was helpful and, and at the same time humbling. C.S. Lewis has this um, introduction to uh, Athanasius uh, on the Incarnation. And uh, in the introduction, Lewis writes, he says um, something, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that um, for he, he encourages you for every a uh, living person you read to read something by a dead person. And the reason he says that is he says, you know, you, you gain insights from people who exist in a different time and place and culture. And it's not as if those people in the different time and place and culture are always right. And, and the, the living people you would read, your contemporaries are always wrong. He says, we all have blind spots, but the thing is their blind spots are different 
than what are more naturally our blind spots. And by reading widely and experiencing uh, people beyond you know your normal tribe and and or culture and time, um, you get so much of a fuller picture of um, a better way to see the world, but also a better way to understand God and and uh, in the Bible and 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 God's revelation to us. And I think that was definitely the case for me uh, as we were there at this conference. I'll, I'll say to you, I think um, there is a lot for the Western church to learn from the Chinese church. And Ryan, you alluded to some of this already. And maybe Abby, are you trying to jump in here? Yeah, what? To, to, That's yeah. my question kind of. <laughs> so. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go. Yeah, so my question is for you all, um, how did this experience of both being in Kuala Lumpur and specifically at the conference shift the way you view church in America as a whole and then specifically our work at New City? Um, and did you see any blind spots? Um, and how is that informing um, just the way you think about things? There's a conversation, I think, happening in the United States now about what does it look like to do ministry in a place in American society that the church hasn't had here, maybe ever, but certainly not recently. In other words, uh, the American church has enjoyed, if not a privileged place in society, at least a central place, a culturally central place in the United States. And uh, I think we all recognize that uh, the times they are a change in when it comes to that. And so we're trying to figure out what does it look like to be a faithful church that exists more on the margins of society. The great thing is, we don't have to figure that out all on our own because there are plenty of examples in our own history. I'm thinking of the African-American church in particular, um, but certainly around the world. And the Chinese church is a great example of that, of how to live faithfully uh, on the margins of society. And so uh, I think we would be um, uh, myopic uh, and, and probably just um, uh foolish not to take advantage of these connections that we have um, to resources um, that exist to, to teach the church in America what, what it means to, to live in and, uh, and to do mission, to live on mission in a situation like that. I think one thing that um, struck me by this coronavirus, of course, you guys know it started in China and, and now it's all around the world. And it really highlights there's no such thing as a local problem anymore. I think there are a lot of things that we are very interconnected with and pandemics, one of them, but also church challenges and issues. And I think there are a lot of things that the Chinese churches face or the American churches face here that are really similar. And, and it's really good to, to know that we don't have to figure things out, even just how do we respond to the coronavirus? What, do we, what should the churches do here? Well, we don't have to look that far because two months before, Chinese churches have to face the same problem and ask the same questions. So I think you've, you may have been seen in our new city um, emails and communications that, oh, some of that we really learned from what churches in China did. And I think that it also extends a lot of different questions about how this church faced sexuality, faced postmodernism, faced um, evangelism. And... I think all of these churches, we, a lot of these questions, we could have real dialogues with not just churches in China, but churches around the other parts of the world and churches that maybe parts of the world that we don't 
thing as Christian or, or at least um, has a Christendom history in it. This is kind of a two-part question, but um, Ryan, I guess maybe mostly directed at you. What, going the other direction, um, not so much what does the Chinese church learn from the Western church, but are there particular connecting points that you've found in your work with China Partnership that Chinese Christians, Chinese church leaders are um, either learning or particularly finding useful that have come from uh, the church in the West that they found uh, pertinent or uh, applicable? Yeah, it's it's actually a really nice kind of um, shift. So a lot of churches, a lot of Christians in China came out of the cultural revolution, reading the Bible on their own and just studying on their own. And they are really diligent in studying the Bible, but they don't have the technical training. They don't have the theological training to read the Bible. And so over the last few decades, when Reformed theology was introduced to China, it really helped the Christians there to think about the Bible in, um, in a covenantal way, to think about the providence of God, to think about the grace of God very differently. And and it's a great shift from the moralistic teaching of the Bible, kind of like what you should do, when you shouldn't do, and how to live a good life, to actually a grace base of Christianity to learn about the grace of God and what Jesus has done for you. And then also along with that, with the Reformed theology that's introduced in China, a, a way of thinking about what the church is. So uh, a, a theology of the church and what the church should be and what it's like to be the church to be um, the city of God in the city of man in China. And that really affects how a lot of these churches now interact with the government, interact with the community, interact with their cities. And that theology is now kind of being exported out of China back to the West because that's the question that American churches, Western churches are asking, like what's our relationship with our neighbors? What's our relationship with our cities? So you kind of see this kind of importing, exporting, of reformed theology out of China, especially the theology of the church. I'll say that I tuned in to some of the um, live stream of the conference, and it was really fun to hear the pastors um, who presented because they did a good job of kind of parsing out the strengths of each church and drawing those connections. So if anyone has a chance to listen to some of those talks, I highly recommend them. Ryan, why don't you ask that global missions question you were going to ask? Yeah, so as we were talking, we've talked about learning from China and, and being at a conference with such a diverse city and with so many people represented from other parts of the world. How does that affect your, Josh and Jake, your view of global mission in general? So not just missions to China, but global mission. Uh, I think for me, one of the things that kind of was a little bit of a paradigm shift was that I think I was ministered to more by going than by anything I brought. Um, so there was some transition for me where I thought to myself, a lot of my participation in global missions has been what I'm bringing to the people I'm coming to uh, versus thinking about what I can learn uh, when I'm in places. Uh, So obviously with some of my involvement with back to back, we always say that the, the folks are impacted more by coming on the trip and they go home being changed by the experiences they've had. But even in that, you still kind of feel like, hey, I went to help these uh, kids who don't have parents involved in their lives and uh, maybe orphan kids. So, um, you know, there's some sense of I'm still doing something. I'm still the one bringing the value. 
Um, and what I learned on this trip was more that, um, you know, what I can benefit most by is potentially bringing back uh, to here, uh, to America, what I learned when I was there. I'm not sure this is a new concept for me, but um, I think further enrich my understanding of the mutuality of partnership across um, the world with regard to the church, just how much we have to offer each other and what a more beautiful uh, picture um, we have of what God is doing in the world when we get little glimpses um, from around the globe, but then also how small the world is in some ways. Um, There are certainly differences uh, rooted in culture and history, but also a lot of what's happening in global cities is happening in cities in the United States uh, as well. And uh, in some very real tangible ways, church planting feels like church planting almost anywhere. There are significant contextual differences. I I don't want to diminish those, but many, many, many of the challenges are pretty similar. And uh, one of the highlights of the trip uh, for me uh, was uh, a breakfast um, that a few of us had with um, uh, a growing partner uh, who had planted a church called New City uh, Church in Mumbai in India. And we get to spend some time um, with Anand and his wife and just talking church planting there. Um, in many ways, it, it, it just it's a familiar discussion um, about the challenges of the first few years of church planting, about how to care for your people well, how to balance the needs that exist within the body with wanting to serve and love the city. How do you engage the unchurched and at the same time bring the gospel to bear uh, on folks who've known Jesus for quite some time? And uh, it was fun to just talk ministry um, with somebody who's, who's doing it uh, about as far away as you can around the other side of the globe, but um, with many of the same uh, challenges and difficulties and, frankly, some creative solutions that um, we would do well to, to think about employing um, where we are. So, yeah, mutuality, I think, is how I would describe that. So maybe um, let me ask just Josh and Jake, and I'll answer it myself too. What you know? What's your favorite moment from the conference? And for Abby, um, even though you didn't attend to it, like as you hear us talk about the conference, what's you know one of the favorite things you've heard from how our reflection? One of my favorite parts was when we got to hear directly from some of the members of the Early Rain Church and the experiences that they've had um, uh, through their community and just what they've uh, experienced and what that's looked like. And it really kind of broadened my perspective on uh, what it means to live in a pretty active state of persecution um, and how that really affects uh, even the day-to-day. They talked a lot about how they had to reorganize where they were meeting for school because they didn't want to uh, meet in private. They wanted to continue to meet in public, but uh, the government was cracking down on the, the parks that they were meeting in and the buildings they were using. Uh, so they had to use Zoom calls and they had to uh, continually change the, the places that they were meeting uh, just to teach their kids. So um, to hear those stories and actually meet the people as opposed to just having read uh, some of the accounts uh, was probably my most memorable uh, experience. And just a context, early rains the church in, in Chengdu, China. It's a huge crackdown by the government and the pastors, Wang Yi, the guy that I mentioned earlier, is now in prison for nine years. Uh, I really 
uh, still think about, even months later now, uh, a sermon that you translated for, Ryan, um, from a Chinese pastor uh, from the book of Daniel. And uh, the sense, of course, the context is uh, Daniel in Babylon and trying to live faithfully in a city uh, where his values are not upheld or, or um he allowed in some cases, um, but certainly are not, uh, there's no incentive uh, for him to continue to follow um, the Lord other than that it, he believes it's true. And uh, so watching it, one, just the, the, the exposition of the text was, was wonderful, but the application and then knowing the context that the pastor who's preaching this is in a very, a very real situation that feels um uh, not unlike the experience that Daniel has of a government that is not interested in seeing him flourish as an individual or their church um, in any way, and in fact would like to prevent some aspects of what they do uh, from occurring. And um, that testimony of uh, faithfulness uh, on the part of the, the church in China continues to encourage me as we think about what does it mean for us to be um faithful witnesses to the gospel, hopefully in a winsome way in our culture, but in a way that in, in, in many respects is still called to contrast um, the way of, of truth and life uh, in Jesus Christ from um, the way that the rest of the culture, uh, culture in America that would tend toward idols of uh, money and sex and uh, individualism and uh, self-expression um, to, uh, to continue to live as uh, much like Daniel and his friends um, in terms of understanding our, our role as contrast um, to the, the broader culture. So I love that and uh, still feel convicted by it. I'll share it's um, a moment that I actually missed at the conference, but now hearing about it later on and, and I heard the recording of it afterward. And it was after, it's Thursday night after Keller spoke and I had to leave the, the conference hall early, but the the people there, they sang a song written by Bonhoeffer. I don't know how to say it in German, but in English, I think it, it translated into by the gracious power of God wonderfully sheltered. And, and it's a song that Bonhoeffer wrote in prison about the, the power of God sheltering them as they expect a new year, as they welcome a new year. And, and, the conference happened on Chinese New Year, and you hear these Christians, believers, came from China, going back to China, expecting to be further persecuted. One of the pastors, apparently he kind of broke down, wept during the whole song. And he was one of the pastors I translated for, so he was a friend of mine, to hear about that and what they have to face, and then singing that song together from Bonhoeffer, who was in prison and kind of a powerful moment to to know the courage of the Chinese pastors and, and believers, but also to know the faithfulness they have in singing that song together, the unity and and um, and the courage and, and to to also trust in the faithfulness of God. I think that it's a powerful moment to, to imagine and to listen to. I was just going to say, kind of to Jake's point, um, hearing accounts of the conference and just accounts of the Chinese church. Um, one of the big things in the season of us worshiping at home and just how sad that makes me and the grief, the tangible grief I feel over not being joined with other Christians um, regularly has given me an opportunity to foster empathy for the Chinese church um, and churches 
elsewhere around the world um, who can't worship publicly. And my prayer is that I'll be moved to prayer for them in those moments of my own grief, knowing that this is their way of life. And so I just encourage all of us um, at New City that as, I mean, we feel this deep burden of not being together, that um, we wouldn't wallow in that, but instead turn that energy toward God and that grief um, and remember our brothers and sisters in China. All right, everybody. Uh, This wraps up our edition of uh, the weekend edition of Marginalia. The other version of this podcast uh, happens on a daily basis for devotionals based on our readings and prayers. Make sure and tune in to that. And uh, until next time, wash your hands, FaceTime, text, Zoom your friends. Happy Easter, everybody. Christ the Lord who died lives again. Hallelujah. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Saturday. Bye, all. After Friday, but Sunday's coming. Oh, man. You're going to have a lot of editing to do in this one, Abby, I think.